To the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Welcome, friends, to the most jam-packed, slightly confusing Sunday of the entire church year. Palm Sunday, the Sunday of the Passion, it even has two names. It's a day of contradictions. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, shouts the crowd, as Jesus rides a colt into Jerusalem, and then later, crucify him. And so the week that we call holy, no matter what events it might commemorate, kicks off. This ride that Jesus makes, that we slightly imitated this morning, from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, is remembered as the triumphal entry. It's a moment of celebration for our Lord and for his first disciples when Christ makes his grand entrance into the capital city that was the center of Israel's political and religious life. Jerusalem, as Jesus well knows, is the place where it all happens for the people of Israel. Throughout history, prophets, priests, and kings, as well as the common people of the nation, And the Jewish people who had dispersed throughout the Roman world assigned outsized importance to what happens in this great city. It's the place where the temple stood, where God had promised to dwell with God's people. It has a rich history. And his entry is so loaded with meaning that nothing that happens is without an important reference point. It all means something more than what just meets the eye. Now, Jesus and his followers come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of the Passover. And in the first century, Passover was a volatile time to be in Jerusalem. That's because Passover is the feast during which Jews celebrate their divine deliverance from the Egyptian empire. And it served, somewhat conveniently, to focus their dissatisfaction with their newer imperial overlords, the Romans. So Roman authorities feared that at the Passover, nationalist Jews would get stirred up by all this talk about being freed from oppression and bondage and slavery. So as Jesus was coming into Jerusalem from the east side of the city, it is likely that there were also Roman troops entering from the west to help any overzealous Jews who might take Passover a little too seriously to remember who was in charge. Now, Jesus' ceremonial entry recalls at least two other kinds of military processions. For Jews, of course, there are the Maccabees. Simon Maccabeus, the great guerrilla general who liberated Israel from Hellenistic rule about two centuries before Jesus' time, he came into Jerusalem in the same way. If you have a Bible with an apocrypha, in 1 Maccabees, Simon entered Jerusalem with praise and palm branches and with hymns and songs. So that's one kind of procession that Jesus is imitating. And likewise, the Romans practiced, of course, an imperial triumphus. It was a march into the city for a conquering general and his army that was both a civil ceremony and a religious rite. This parade was held to celebrate and to sanctify the achievements of Roman commanders who had won great military successes. You may have seen this depicted on Trajan's column in Rome, which commemorates Trajan's victory in the Dacian Wars. So on the day of his triumph, on the day of this great march, 
the general would put on all of his regalia that identified him as near divine and then ride a chariot through the streets of the conquered city or of Rome in procession with his army and the spoils of his victory. This is the big imperial spectacle that is later lampooned in Colossians 2.15, in which the risen Christ puts the principalities and powers who have been defeated by the cross on parade. So entering Jerusalem in the way that Jesus does, with supporters lining the streets to proclaim the praise and glory of the one who is coming in, is not just a neat way to start the week. Jesus is claiming explicitly to be more than just another rabbi. That means, of course, the donkey that he rides is also not accidental. The donkey signifies the ancient triumph of the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49. It's not just a ride for Jesus. It is symbolic fulfillment of the ancient dreams of Israelite sovereignty. It is almost like our declaration of independence. Zechariah says it like this, Shout aloud, daughter of Jerusalem, lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding upon a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and shall command peace to the nations. So horses are for generals, but the coming king will cut the war horse off from Jerusalem and will command peace. All of this symbolism matters just as much in the first century as it does for us. Because the question is, is Jesus actually a king? The crowd says so, and Jesus, for once, does not tell them to be quiet. But what kind of king will he be? We have all heard the story of the emperor's new clothes by the Danish author Hans Christian Andersen. Probably remember at least a little bit about the vain emperor who cares too much about wearing beautiful garments. And he hires two weavers who are world-renowned, who claim to be able to make him the most beautiful outfits with the most elaborate patterns, the likes of which few men have ever seen. And the weavers, of course, turn out to be con artists. And they convince the emperor that they're using a fabric so fine, so well-made, that it is invisible to anyone who is either unfit for his position or hopelessly stupid. Now, the con lies in that the weavers actually aren't making anything. They're pretending to make clothes. So no one, not even the emperor or his well-paid ministers, can see the alleged clothes, but they all pretend that they can for fear of appearing unfit for their positions or hopelessly stupid. So finally, the weavers, after making lots of money off this emperor, report that the suit is finished, and they mime dressing him up, and then he marches out in procession before all the people of the capital city. And the townspeople, of course, go along with this premise a little uncomfortably because nobody wants to be the one to say, I don't see the clothes that only idiots can't see, do you? But finally, a child in the crowd blurts out that the emperor is wearing nothing at all and everybody takes up the laughter. Now, the emperor, of course, realizes that what they're saying is true. But he's come this far already, and so he continues to walk in procession. This parade by Jesus into Jerusalem, by the one man who's willing to tell the truth to everybody he meets, shows the pilots and the Caesars and the generals who claim to wield power and respect 
who claim to have the real power that runs the world to be false and naked as the day that they were born before God. All of these images appear and then they're turned on their heads. The point of this odd story of the triumphal entry, this massive parade, is to reorganize all of this symbolism around a figure who is himself completely humble, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the king. The crowd gets that part right. But he's the king who speaks only the truth. And he is coming to Jerusalem to be crowned, but in a very different way than anyone might expect, because he will be rejected, and in his rejection will reveal the foolishness at the heart of so much of the, what the world calls power. Jesus was born into this world that is run by a kind of double system of exploitation. On the one hand, you have the Roman Empire imposing taxes and political control, and on the other hand, you have the Jewish state itself running through the temple and its tithes and contributions. And Jesus' life and ministry is a challenge to both of them, which is why these two powerful forces come together to crush him. You heard it in the gospel reading this morning. After the day of the crucifixion, Herod and Pilate get to be good buddies because the thing that they can agree on is that Jesus has to be dealt with. Galilee, in the north of Israel where Jesus was from, was known to be the most troublesome district in the whole country. It's kind of like Gorst. It's an, it's an outlying area. I'm borrowing this joke from John Briggs, actually. But it is an outlying area further from Jerusalem. It's a place where all the revolutionary movements that trouble the Romans start. All the guerrilla warfare and the Jewish nationalist uprisings that pestered them come from Galilee. To be a Galilean was to come from a place known to produce troublemakers. Remember in the Gospels when Andrew is introduced to Jesus and he says, oh, he comes from Nazareth. And, they, and Andrew says, can anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus comes from stock that's known to be troubling. And in this world, colonial rule and the taxation and revolutionary uprisings that followed were part of the fabric of life. So imagine what you hear when you hear in that world the announcement of a new kingdom and a new kind of king. The expectations are loaded. But Jesus shows us in the gospel what kind of kingdom he intends. He gathers together the dispossessed of his community, the poor, the sick, fishermen, women, collaborators with the empire. And he teaches them by word and by example what the kingdom of God actually is. He eats with sinners and he announces the coming of a time in which the outcasts and rejects of history will be justified by God and the whole world restored to its proper purpose, glorifying the one who made all things. Now, the common people heard that proclamation as good news, but the authorities, religious and otherwise, rightly recognized that what was good news for the poor, the sick, the friendless and the needy would be condemnation for the wealthy, the comfortable, and those in power. We often think of Jesus as being just misunderstood, but it seems pretty clear that those in power understood Jesus very well. They understood the implications of his gospel, and they dealt with him on the basis of their worst fears. As one of my seminary professors was fond of saying, 
No one came back from a wilderness retreat and said, God just wants us to love everybody and then was crucified. Jesus is a rabble rouser. An English priest famously once described him as a rebel born in the shed of a public house who called his king a silly jackal who broke the conventions of society, who defied the world, who broke the law, was hunted by the police, and was destroyed by an unlikely coalition of the worldly and the next worldly. Jesus was not just interested in saving souls, and that's why he's a threat, because Christ is convinced that the whole world needs to be remade in God's image. Palm Sunday, today, brings all of that to Jerusalem. Every system, every authority, every power and principality that is not completely submissive to the will of God the Father will have to be disrupted and subverted. This King Jesus enters Jerusalem with no army, but he is extremely dangerous. Some of the more zealous religious authorities tell him to rebuke his disciples, and Jesus says, if they were silent, the stones, the stones would cry out. This is the beginning of something momentous. And yet Jesus remains a kind of baffling Messiah. He's not the conquering ruler like Caesar was, who destroys his enemies and makes them his slaves. Even his betrayer will be able to sit with him at the table. And he will not be destroyed by death because in his death he wins a great victory. So that those who imitate his pattern of sacrificial and self-giving love will find themselves released and made free. So he is disappointing in at least two ways. For the crowds that want a violent revolutionary firebrand and for the whispering schemers who hope for a quick end to this rabble-rousing, both will be disappointed. Christ is a Messiah, the likes of which could not have been imagined, and that is made abundantly clear through the way he deals with Holy Week, with steady humility to make himself an offering. And that is not satisfying for the crowds. Those who were so happy to welcome Jesus as he entered the city have changed their tune by the end of the week. As you and I know, those who praise him turn against him all too willing to have Pontius Pilate deal with Jesus and his dangerous blasphemy, using the most brutal tools history has ever invented. The one who was hailed as a deliverer, as the king who comes in the name of the Lord, is shouted down and tossed aside in favor of a murderer. Now, we like to think we probably wouldn't be in that second group. Some people really find the participatory reading of the Passion Gospel to be very upsetting, and they will come and tell the priest, because it seems to imply that we are some way complicit with the crucifixion of Jesus. And let me be very clear, we are. Just as much as those in the actual crowd, we're willing to push Jesus aside to have our needs met by other saviors. We seek our own will at the expense of other people. We ignore the call of the gospel to repentance and reconciliation. And above all, we basically just think that we should be queens and kings and Jesus should take a back seat. The powers and the principalities that claim to rule the world are happy to help us in this work. 
to turn us into our own individual tyrants, baying for the blood of this innocent man who is in our way. And those powers are the ones that sent Jesus to the cross because they understand that his life and his message was aimed at disrupting the old, broken, sinful patterns that they seek to perpetuate. The powers and the principalities resist the good news of the coming kingdom of God because it proclaims that God's love is transcendent, that transformation is possible, that what we can see or acquire for ourselves is not all there is to life, and that we can in fact be remade by God's love. Even if we're just as fickle as the crowds in the gospel, this is the truth. We can indeed be remade in Christ's image. We can become servants in his kingdom. That is the hope of this Holy Week. That the upside down kingdom that Jesus proclaimed and embodied is not just a fanciful dream, but a reality that the last shall indeed be first, that the hungry shall be fed, that the merciful will receive mercy, and the king will reign from a cross. Christ calls us now, as always, to embrace these contradictions as good news and to live our lives reshaped by his humility and by his sacrifice. Amen.